HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Michael Ameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners, and this is The Line. Uh, I'm joined today by Ron Silver, and we're going to start chatting in one minute, but I wanted to let everyone know that it is, of course, the holiday season, the time of giving, and uh, I invite you, if you are a fan of Heritage Radio, to go over to our website, click on the heart in the upper right-hand corner, and please make a donation. It is extremely helpful so we can keep delivering the amazing content that all of our hosts uh, and all of our engineering and director staff puts out for you every single day. Uh, also, we're doing our hosts takeover. Uh, so go over to our Instagram account at Heritage Radio and watch all of our hosts. It gives you some cool insights into the background of their daily lives when they're not in the studio. Uh, I am extremely excited to welcome Ron Silver to the show. Uh, he opened Bubby's as a uh, one-man pie delivery shop uh, in Thanksgiving Day in 1990, which which means that Bubby's has been in business for 26 years now, which is a monumental achievement, I think, in any city in the United States, but in New York especially, that is very impressive. Uh, he opened up in a small kitchen on the horner, corner of Hudson and Northmore Street in Tribeca. He was baking pies. He was selling them to restaurants and neighbors. There's now two locations. There's one in Tribeca and one in the Meatpacking District uh, right across from the new Whitney Museum. Uh, Ron, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. We have also five in Japan, if you can imagine. Wow. Crazy. Well, okay, we'll talk about that. Yeah. We'll talk about Japan in a little while, but I want to start with this. 26 years. I saw on the menu when I went to eat there about 10,000 customers a week, 88 – am I getting these numbers right? Between the two restaurants, eight, yeah. Yeah, 88,000 burgers a year is something yeah. that's listed <clears throat> on the menu. Uh, yes. After 26 years, you've achieved uh, a certain level of consistency and longevity in a market where pretty much neither of those things ever exist. Uh, how do you, how have you achieved that? Well, that is a good question. Um, I mean, first of all, I think a lot of it is luck. 
And a lot of it is uh, being willing to be flexible and change whilst sort of staying true to the core of what what Bubby started as, uh, which is really always just to cook good food. Um, and uh, I... Th- I mean, I've always just been committed to the community and to the restaurant, and it's provided... I'm, I'm an artist, and so it's provided me the opportunity to sort of grow and learn as an artist, and I, I never really set out to get rich off of it. You know, it, it was always just something that allowed me to do my craft of cooking and sort of being a host and creating a... a I fucking hate this word, but it's a safe environment. Now now that word is destroyed. But it, Bubby's is a safe, nice, sweet spot where it's like my, my first customer was Isabella Rosalini. My second customer was Cindy Lauper. And my third customer was Blondie. Uh, and literally, I Not just walked these people the <clears throat> walking in the door. And it's like, wow, that is weird. And, you know, at the same time, nobody ever... <laughs> never bothered anybody ever so i think part of it is is just being willing to sort of be flexible and if cold pressed juice is cool learn about that or whatever little things are going on along in the world and also uh, i mean something that you guys also i mean i think do well um at mile end is just sort of preserving an old way of cooking and so that's you know somewhere between staying in the in the present and and keeping a foot in the past has just allowed me to be flexible i don't i don't really know though when you started at bubby's were you in the kitchen every single day or did you kind of immediately shift to being like the owner uh type of mentality no i I was in the kitchen for for fucking 15 years (laughs) Like literally on the line for at least eight years and, you know, expediting and, you know, just that, that's the only job I really knew how to do. And so how did you end up at Bubby's? What brought you to that point? You had been cooking in New York at a French restaurant. Uh, what, yeah, type of, at, what type of cooking were you doing? I was a catering chef. I was fli- my last job was flipping eggs at Florent. Mm-hmm. which is this 24-hour place in a uh, meatpacking district, actually right next door to where our Bubby's is in the meatpacking district now. Um, <clears throat> so I sort of went from being a, a precocious uh, chef. You know, when I was 25, I was the executive chef of a, a catering company in New York and doing big, big events like at the Temple of Dendur and, and you know, the Morgan Library and all kinds of big things. And I... I, I <laughs> I sort of just became unemployable. and So you became unemployable how? You decided that you wanted to do your own thing, but how do you make the jump from being a catering chef at 25 to saying, I think I'm ready to do my own restaurant? I mean, how does that you know, Essentially, that I, was, I was fired from my job uh, as breakfast cook, and you know, I ended up just sort of borrowing a kitchen and begging this guy to let let me open up. We, we sort of started baking it at where we are right now at Hudson Street in Northmore in September of 1990. And the whole neighborhood really just smelled like pie. And so people were pounding on the back door. And so sometime around October, I started begging this guy to let me open for one day before Thanksgiving. And he was like, no way. 
you can't do that. It'll ruin my chances of selling this business that he thought he was selling. And, uh, you know, it just became a joke. And finally, two days before Thanksgiving, he said that we could open for one day <clears throat> to sell pies. So we opened for the day and uh, did sold like 300 pies. It was insane. Wow. Uh, and then uh, my, my then partner uh, and I decided to cook Thanksgiving dinner. We got completely drunk and decided that since this guy was out of town, we would just open up the next day. And he didn't come back to town for like three weeks. And we I forgot he even existed, really. Uh, and he walked in in the middle of lunch. We were busy. He's like, what is going on? I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, dude. He's like, whatever. And <laughs> just sort of started like that. Um, we And we ended up signing a lease in April of 91. So we just... So for those first three weeks, what's it like when you're kind of this ragtag pirate operation? Did you really just kick open three the doors months, and like say, I'm cooking whatever I want? Oh, uh, well, my first, the first menu that we had was Thanksgiving leftovers from, because we had, you know, Thanksgiving had like 20 people the night before and had a ton of leftovers and we just served that. And yeah, I just started cooking whatever I wanted to make. So the the current version of the Bubby's menu, it's it's filled with tons of crowd pleasers. There's a lot of things on the menu that um, are going to be very familiar to people. There's barbecue, there's mac and cheese, there's poppers, there's uh, some really nice salads. Um, but also you do a lot of responsible sourcing, which is listed at the bottom of the menu. But um, I'm not sure that necessarily people would know that if they're ordering the mac and cheese so how important is it for you to sort of straddle that line where you're paying attention to where you're getting your ingredients from but also you know you've got a burger and a brisket sandwich on the menu and you're you're doing a lot of things that um perhaps are attracting a lot of people that don't necessarily care about those things are you trying to like sneak it in the back door or or not well as a chef i feel a responsibility to cook good food uh uh, not just cook good food. I, you know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've been a cook. I was born a chef really. I mean, when I was little, when I was six, I was, I knew where asparagus was growing or, you know, I just had this sort of field map in my mind of where everything was. And I started cooking when I was little, you know, seven, eight years old, I was making like souffles and stuff. So I was sort of, I've always had a passion for cooking. And at some point, uh, it dawned on me that I had fed somebody their first meal and their last meal, and just that this was my sort of role. And, um, you know, we, we really have been working with sources of, you know, with local sources for, for our food from day one. We used to go to Union Square all the time. It, it just wasn't really, we weren't so aware of the sort of factory farm Situation. Although, if you go and read, you know, James Beard, American Cookery, he talks all about the sort of in 1972 the degradation of American farming and ham making and beef growing and all kinds of stuff. So, I guess I was sort of aware of that, but it, but it just never was like a, a mission to sort of ding that bell, like Alice Waters dings that bell well. Um, and I think that my goal is really to cook sort of whatever you would call crowd pleasers, but American straight up food and make it with good ingredients. And I'm happy to do that. 
You say that you really, from birth, basically, it sounds like you've had cooking in your your blood. You were cooking when you were six and seven years old. Where did you grow up? How um, much did food play a role in your family's life? Were you like this little precocious kid in the kitchen who was whipping stuff up, or was that what your family was? Were you a food family? Yes, I mean, my mother was was born and raised in Brooklyn, and. <clears throat> I was born in New York City, but then we moved to Salt Lake when I was two. Mm-hmm. So food definitely played a lot of uh, a positive role. You know, has given me a lot of memories uh, from my childhood. And my mother was really an experimental cook. So she would make all kinds of crazy stuff like curried leg of lamb or, I don't know, a million weird things. But my neighbors were four little white girls with blue eyeshadow and blonde hair and their mom made like uh fried pork chops with campbell's mushroom soup gravy i was like i want that (laughs) so i don't know what happened but we we definitely had and i was also adopted by some uh like uh, mormon pioneer sort of family and that grandma used to make all kinds of you know like roast beef dinner with jello salad sort of white trashy and how long did you live in salt lake for did you spend all of your childhood there yeah i spent my whole childhood there and then i i left salt lake the day after i graduated high school to to go and help my uncle grow marijuana where did you go to do that uh in uh, california and so mendocino how long were you in california for and then how do you end up being a pie man in new york city how well, do you make that jump? There's a lot of adventures in between. <laughs> we only have 40 minutes. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I I basically spent that that one summer growing weed with my uncle, and it was a lot of people in 1980. Uh, people who were up in the hills were basically just dropouts from society. Like this one guy had cut his nose off because he was mad at his, at his girlfriend. And there were people like that all over the place. So I guess at the end of the growing season, I sort of realized that I wasn't quite ready to drop out of society yet at you 17 you or 18. You weren't quite fringe enough to yeah, stay in the hills with the rest of them. Yeah. So I sort of took my first winnings from that, that first year of growing and uh, ended up actually taking over this this restaurant that I had worked in when I was – or a little yogurt sandwich shop that I had worked in when I was in in high school. So, you know, I took my money from that. Took Back this, in Salt Lake? Back or? in Salt Lake okay. City. And uh, that business lasted a full six months, <laughs> which is pretty fucking good. Uh, Not a bad learning experience, opening and was, closing your first business. At before a, QuickBooks, they had a thing called a shoebox. <laughs> <laughs> Some $20 bills in a rubber band. and $20 bills in a rubber band and a bunch of bills not in a rubber band. <laughs> Um, a bunch of handwritten invoices that went directly into the garbage can, maybe? Shoebox. It was like <laughs> before the garbage can. So uh, after that, I sort of had a whole bunch of little adventures. And then I was in Atlanta, uh, where I did sort of basic chef apprenticeship in Atlanta for like four years. And then I, I was recruited to come up to New York City to, to cook this uh, 100th. Hundredth year retrospective for Jean Miro at the Guggenheim. I had no idea who Jean Miro was, what the Guggenheim was, but I was like, "Fuck yeah, I'll do that." So uh, I ended up 
cooking this party and uh and then i was fired after the, the, my first event because of some sort of young youthful frolicky behavior is at what the I call party it. uh in the kitchen at the guggenheim uh, oh no in the kitchen it, oh, off-site yeah at a, a yes off some some dodgy things happen <laughs> okay i don't think they're dodgy but you know we won't talk maybe about i won't radio. press you on yeah, that let's okay something that. happened something happened that was you made it one day after yeah <laughs> you made it one day on this job okay <laughs> and, and then i had a whole bunch of little weird jobs like i was the personal chef and housekeeper for a psychiatrist up on the upper east side and and that was a fucking mess also um <laughs> Like one time Ruth Westheimer called on the phone. She's like, this is Dr. Ruth Westheimer. I'm calling for Dr. Whatever his name was. And I was like, is this really Dr. Ruth? (laughs) And then another time Cardinal O'Connor came for dinner. And the doctor was supposed to be there at 7. And Cardinal O'Connor showed up at 7. And the doctor wasn't there. And I was like, Cardinal, would you like a drink? And he's like, absolutely. So I made two drinks, and I was sitting in the living room with Cardinal O'Connor when when the doctor showed up, and apparently that wasn't proper behavior, so I was also let go from that. Okay, so there's a trend that you're building (laughs) here, which is that uh, you don't make it very far in a lot of these jobs and business ventures, but then now you've made it 26 years, and you've got two businesses. So did you become more mature and sort of – get a business sense that helped you cultivate this or are we talking about a great partnership here or really is this is this actually lucky because it seems like it seems like you've been hired many times you've got the cooking background but then fun maybe gets in the way and you aren't able to stick around for that long so how did you how have you been able to make it work with your own business well for one thing i've been blessed with some serious mentorship uh, really good mentorship, and you know, really from almost day one after opening Bubby's, uh, you know, I, I I was in a meeting with somebody who's taking me on as as you know being my mentor, and he's like, "What's your number one selling thing? When's your busiest hour? How much money do you make on that thing? What's your least selling thing?" I was like, "I have no idea." So you know, I was just sort of pushed along to to be a better businessman. And the truth is, is I'm not a great businessman now. Um, you know, I get a lot of coaching. I don't pretend to be a good businessman. You know, I, I pretend to have a passion to make things. And, you know, I really count on, on people to help me run a, run my business well. But I, I just, you know, I'm good at, at certain things and I'm not good at other things and I just don't pretend to be good at them. Was there a specific moment when you either yourself decided or someone told you to get out of your own way a little bit? Uh, I get told that every day, (laughs) you know, every day, literally somebody tells me to get out of my own way. I, uh, a lot of, a lot of people that listen to this, uh, show and listen to heritage or they're in the business or they'd like to be in the business. Maybe they're a barista. They have a dream of opening up a coffee shop. Uh, what do you think was uh, the turning point moment for Bubby's as a small business to when uh, something changed dramatically and you thought to yourself, I'm, I might have something here? Was it like, was it that day one when you did Thanksgiving leftovers? Was it the first year when you said, 
wow, I made it a year. There was there's a couple of things that I would say. One one is that uh, <clears throat> when we opened, there was a place called, across the street called the Canadian Pancake House, and they had a line around the block, and they had these obscene portions and, and all these weird rules and no sharing allowed, and no you, there was no way you could eat more than a tenth of a plate. So tons tons of you know, bridge and tunnel people just waiting in line across the street for these giant portions. And I remember standing outside thinking, well, if I could get that line to be over here across the street, then I would. And maybe three or four months later, I sort of noticed that the line was at Bubby's and, and not really across the street. So I think that was a moment. <clears throat> and then we had this other weird thing happen, which was, uh, John Kennedy had his last breakfast at Bubby's and you know when he died there was my business went up like 80% and it stayed there how weird yes was it that was reported in news stories or well he was our neighbor okay and so there were people waiting you know dropping flowers and doing whatever you know they were admiring in the outside of his apartment I guess and there was a lot of news down there, and I, I really, I don't know what, it's some weird phenomena, but our, you know, I thought it was just going to go up and go back down, but it sort of just stayed up. How bizarre. Yeah. And uh, so from year one to, say, year eight, when you're still working on the line, are you thinking to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get out of the kitchen. I mean, I know you have a family now. You have four children. You're married, right? So how, how did you remove yourself from the kitchen at a certain point? And uh, what's your general like day-to-day like now that you have two locations and you've got another business that we're going to talk about later? But uh, how, how did you make that kind of transition out of the kitchen from doing something that you'd been doing for about 15 years straight at that point? Yeah. Well, for one thing, you know, at a certain point before I made a switch, I just never thought that I would do anything else because this is what I love to do. And it's something that I've been doing all my life and I I liked it. Um, But when we expanded next door, when we first opened, we were just in one space. And then we took the space next door in 1996. And, you know, I had some issues with, with one of my partners who sort of decided to start spending a lot of money on the renovation and also not showing up. So, you know, it's like some $3,000 antique booze pouring machine would show up and I'd be like, what in the fuck is that? And he's like, I can't talk to you right now because I'm hanging out with my kids. I was like, oh my God. So in a certain way, going through this expansion, it, it forced me to do all kinds of stuff, including you know, groveling for more money in the middle of an exp- in a, a construction job. And we literally, you know, broke through the walls in the middle of lunch. So it's like jackhammering going on. I'm out of money. I'm trying to, you know, like keep things under control, keep customers happy. My partner wasn't showing up. And, you know, I was basically forced to get off the line. And then at some point, uh, you know, after the construction and after things sort of settled down, um, I had, well, I noticed that we, we had a problem where the credit cards weren't batching and it was like five days and I asked my partner to do, to take care of it. And he said, no. And 
I sort of did the classic removal of apron, drop on ground, and I was in Havana the next day, and not, not a person in the world knew where I was, and uh, and I was there for like three weeks, and so when I came back, I was sort of off the line and doing other things in a way. Was Havana a almost like a freak out meltdown or were you trying to remove yourself for clarity purposes to come back with a sense of purpose or were you like i'm leaving and i'm never coming back was that the immediate reaction it was really just a clearing out and i'm very good at doing that uh you know if i need to step away i just step away and and clear my head and it does me a lot of good because it was very contemplative and and uh you know it was it was a great a, a great thing to do, but it, it wasn't any sort of delusional running away. It was more like a sort of wake-up call because I'm a person that shows up every day, same time, no matter what. So if I, it was, it was noticed that I was gone for that long. <laughs> I would imagine that yeah. they noticed. Um, do you have uh, larger expansion plans for Bubbies? You've got a big, sprawling location across from the Whitney. The Tribeca location is pretty big. It looked to me like... I don't know, 80 or 90 seats. It looked pretty large. 100. 100, yeah. yeah. Do you have uh, any additional plans in the mix for more locations? Well, we, you know, we have these restaurants in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so those are sort of rolling out. We're opening number six and seven this year. And are they all in big general cities? Or are they all five of them in are, Tokyo? Or? Five of them are in Tokyo. One is in Yokohama. And then we're opening up in a new city in Fukuoka. Uh, Kyushu, which is in southern Japan, um, sometime next year. How does that even come about? Well, luck. This guy, I, I came into the restaurant one day. It was busy. Um, my, and my manager, uh, Vinny, was like, uh, these guys from Japan call. They want to open a restaurant in Japan. I was like, call them and tell them to blow me because I am not doing that. Um, so he's like, no, you really have to call them. So I called up. I called up this guy Warren. I was like, "Yeah, I am absolutely not doing that. It's just it'll never work. You guys will never understand it, and I don't even know where Japan is really." And he's like, "Well, how about if we just have lunch? Because my partners really want to bring Bubbies to Japan." And I was like, "Well, I have lunch every fucking day, and if you're sitting there, I, I could care less. So, see you at lunch." I or he's like, "See you at lunch," and. You know, within two weeks, I was walking around in a vanilla box in Yokohama with a hard hat on. Unbelievable. And so they – I mean, why do you think that they wanted to bring Bubbies to Japan? Well, the original reason that it was it – was, it was celebrating the 150th anniversary of Commodore Perry sort of forcing trade relations with America, uh, with you know, between America and Japan. So it was a sort of uh, – Japan Railroad, which is a huge company, wanted to bring in an authentic American restaurant to sort of celebrate this opening of trade to the West. And it really took off so well that they, you know, they just started rolling them out. Did you ever imagine after that first meeting that you would be opening your sixth location of a Bubby's in a country, in a, any foreign country, let alone Japan? No. Several thousands of miles no. away? It was the furthest thing that I, from my mind, I could not even think of that. Do you travel over there to go to locations every once in a while? Do you have 
do you, I mean, I assume you have obviously managers and chefs on the ground, but do you oversee any of that operation or is it more of like a franchise type of deal? It's licensing, but licensing. I, I have a okay. close relationship with the chef there who speaks English well. He's Japanese and he lived in New York for 12 years. So we talk all the time and, you know, it's, it's, I, I have to absolutely pay attention. Um, it's it's not just some sort of formulated thing, and it does change, you know. And it's often. the same recipes visually. Is it similar on the inside? Well, what's missing there is the ability to grow local stuff. Like beef in Japan costs fifty dollars for a hundred grams, and uh, you know a watermelon is four hundred dollars for a nice little cube shaped watermelon, or a perfect peach is like two fifty. So. Uh, they have a very different mentality, and it's it's been a real process to forge these relationships. But now we actually do have relationships with people, and I mean, I, I've basically caused several international events in a way. Um, one is that you know we were meeting with apple growers in in uh, northern Japan, and you know. In this press conference, this guy was telling me how proud he was that they planted all these sort of apples that were all... I was like, did you plant all one breed of apple? He's like, yeah. And I was like, that is not a good idea, dude. That's called monoculturalism. You are going to be fucked up if something happens to your apples. This is at a press conference. And uh, so it was not it didn't go over that well and then two other press guys afterwards came up to me and they were like talk to us about monoculturalism oh wow so there's that um so you don't really tread lightly anywhere that you go well i probably need somebody to sort of you know hold me back or put some sort of choker on me i also introduced the word uh fucking fresh to japan and which also caused a bit of a little issue <laughs> We are here with Chef Ron Silver. We're talking about his uh, iconic New York restaurants, Bubby's, uh, which has since made the jump to Japan. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about marijuana. Ooh, I love that. We'll be right back. And this one is Walking Like a Cowboy by Star. We'll be right back. chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth so when shopping for your ingredients look for the new york state grown and certified seal it lets you know which food is grown right right here in new york state certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard you'll not only be serving local food you'll be supporting local farmers Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. We are back on the line with Ron Silver, owner of Bubby's. Uh, 
Bubby's has been open now for 26 years. There's two locations in America, and they're about to open their sixth location in Japan. Uh, Ron, uh, besides working on the line for several years and uh, being an expert pie man uh, and an owner-operator of eight restaurants and also a painter, is now engaging in a new business venture. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what your new company does uh, and what some of the plans are for it. Yeah. So uh, we ju- I just started a company called Relevant Innovations, and it is a cannabis business. Um, and essentially focused on a controllable, low-dose, understandable way of taking uh, cannabis for, you know, for the many, many benefits that it, that it has. So, you know, obviously one of the big one of the big things right now is recreational use and a lot of snickering and a lot of sort of tee hee heeing and that's it's that's really a response to a sort of weird ban on marijuana for the last since 1936. Um and you know, straight up some sort of racist reason for getting rid of this amazing thing, which also then cut into the hemp business. And I don't, you know, I don't need to go into all sort of uh, weirdness behind illegalizing marijuana, but currently, you know, there's a lot of snickering and everybody's thinking, oh, this is great. And certainly walking down any street in New York City, you can smell marijuana. But I've been very much focused on, on, uh, really on little old ladies uh you know bubby's is named after my grandmother's uh which is a whole other little weird story but i just i always have always loved little old ladies my entire life and um so basically we i have this fast acting sweetener so one of the it comes in the form of sugar date sugar coconut sugar stevia agave and uh, maple sugar and it's it's basically you know one of the, the the biggest problem with marijuana edibles today is that you eat one and you have no idea how long it's going to take to kick in and you have no idea what the effect is going to be because it really is a function of how your liver is working that day uh, so I have a, a patent pending uh, process on making uh, on which which makes the cannabis water soluble, and so it is. Uh, it has a faster uptake. It the, this, this these sweeteners kick in in about fifteen minutes, and instead of in a regular edible, you get between two and six percent uh, absorbable THC, which takes one to four hours to to work. With mine, uh, with this relevant innovation sweeteners, it takes about fifteen minutes, and you end up getting about 18 to 22%. So it's a much higher uptake. Um, so, you know, essentially we're, you know, I, I'm trying to design it so that a little old lady could take a quarter teaspoon and not have to take Ambien, could stay away from pain meds. A lot of women are being prescribed opioids right now uh, for various things, but menopause is a big thing. So this, these sugars really help with that and, you know, sort of relieve a lot of effects you said that you know when you were a teenager you went to mendocino and you were working on a weed farm uh how 
uh, how much have you seen the ideas and the industry and the public perception of marijuana change in the last 25 years? And since you worked on a farm back in the day and now you're trying to launch a a public forward-facing company, uh, what do you think the next five or ten years is going to look like uh, in terms of uh, medicinal and recreational use in the United States? Well, I mean, for one thing, I, I really am intimately involved with how how the whole culture has changed. And I've, I've been smoking marijuana since I was a little kid, really, since I was, I guess, 13 or something. Um, and my uncle still grows in, in Mendocino. Um, so I've really seen, I mean, one thing is that a lot of those guys are being left behind and marginalized because they can't quite make the jump from the black market into the legitimate market. Um, but I think one of the biggest, uh, to me, one of the biggest things that I've seen is just how useful this plant is. Uh, the, you know, from helping kids to stop seizures to, you know, being an alternative to pain meds to, you know, the fiber that comes from hemp to, you know, just to a million different things, the oil that comes out of the seeds. It's the most useful thing ever in a certain kind of way for one plant. I can't think of another plant that has as many uses as this. And then just to see the iterations that are coming out, you know, there, I, I went to a party about a year and a half ago, or not a party, it was a kind of marijuana confab that a bunch of us decided to have it at a hotel in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, four seasons. Thank you very much for helping us out. Uh, but, but essentially these guys just started, you know, it was this maybe 20 people invited to participate in this sort of discussion about how to start this business going. And, you know, the first guys that show up, showed up, brought, you know, like 15 different strains of weed and, you know, like a pound of each and just put it out. And then the next guy showed up with a suitcase or a sort of briefcase full of things that I had never even heard of, like wax, shatter, all these dab things. And they breaking out all these electric pipes and it looked like a crack den. Um, And so it's sort of just amazing to see all the different products that come out of it and, and, you know, how they are useful. I'm not so interested in how to get higher. I mean, some of this stuff really causes problems and with how high people get. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not interested in that side of it. I'm much more interested in the sort of low dose. So are you kind of, uh, position, are you positioning this as a, is it going to be a medical company? Is that how you see it? Is it a, recreational product that you hope to be on the shelves in Whole Foods or is it more of like a Dwayne Reed type type of you get a prescription for it from a doctor? Well, I think it's going to end up falling outside of any of those models and I don't really understand. For example, if it's legal medically, why do you need a marijuana dispensary for it? Why doesn't it just sell in the pharmacy? And the reason is because the pharmaceutical industry owns the the channels of distribution into the pharmacies and the pharmacies are not set up for any sort of experimental thing. So this, in a way, marijuana, there's going to be a lot of actual medical benefits and some big guys are going to come up with some big formulas about attacking cancer cells and it's going to be very specific, but there is no controlling the homeopathic uh, aspect of it and it's homeopathy in, in a very effective way 
for example, this you know this oil that I that I've come up with has crazy uh, sexual uh, effects on people, uh, but it also has a very beneficial effect on menopausal women. Um, like it's super helpful. So I'm really looking at the helpful aspect of it. And I, you know, I can't stop people from doing whatever they're going to do. So what is your, what are your plans here with this company? Are you thinking that, uh, are you taking steps away from the restaurants and pursuing this? Or is this, uh, is this a, a company that you've had the vision and now you're kind of turning over the execution of it to someone else? With Bubbies or with the no no with, with the cannabis with the cannabis with relevant uh, no I'm very very involved with it but it's the kind of business where uh, as I said before I'm good at certain things and not good at others so I uh, yeah, we have a CEO um, who's help who's running the company and I'm helping him to understand the sort of nuances of of how I think the thinking is going because he's a very straight laced guy. Um, and has no idea. You really have to understand marijuana to be in the marijuana business, I think, um, because it's a, it's a mentality in it. There's a certain spirituality to it that, you know, Bristol Myers Squibb is never going to get. You know, you can't just pull out certain pieces of this plant and make it, you know, have it be cannabinol or something like that. It doesn't work. How do you envision this working in New York City and New York State? Uh, I don't know the laws in this state, but from a federal standpoint, it's still illegal. It's uh, in California and Colorado. There's uh, you can acquire it in California using a card. I don't actually know how it works in Colorado. Maybe it's a card as no, well. No, you just walk in. You just walk in. Uh, is it on the ballot in New York? Are they? Are there, are there plans to legalize it in New York State? I mean, first of all, it is legal in New York State for medical. And just recently, okay. um, just recently, uh, they added chronic pain to one of the symptoms. So before that, it was like, if you were dead, you could have it. Or if you were almost dead, you could have it. But now you can just have chronic pain and get it. Um, and there's there are a few symptoms, P, PTSD and, and some... It, but it's very limited and the doctor there are very few doctors that can write prescriptions in new york city or in new york state uh there's a very thorough training for the doctors and the doctors really have to visit with the patients it's not like in california you can go on skype and talk to some guy and tell him you have a bunion and you've got a prescription in one minute uh but in new york it is not like that so <clears throat> i'm not sure why new york is the way that it is i i really am not that political uh, as far as I don't want to go hang out at Tammany Hall and watch these guys jerk each other off, excuse my language, trying to figure out how they can make the most money off it, whatever. But what I am thinking is that uh, eventually it's going to be legal in New York. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I, I brought you this little instruction uh, of how to use the sugar, and it was drawn by a friend of mine does all the covers for a New Yorker magazine. And so my little pitch to New York is like, your brain trust has to go to Portland, which is stupid. And New York could be doing so much with, with cannabis, and a lot of markets, a lot of places are doing it. Like in Israel, 
uh, in Tel Aviv right now, they have weekly seminars about how to get involved with the cannabis business. And, you know, Israel is a big mover and shaker. Uh, Spain is starting to really push, you know, push on how they're going to bring cannabis into the 21st century. It's just, you know, now with this current presidential situation, I'm imagining that the whole world is just going to tell America to fuck off. The only reason that cannabis is illegal in the world is because of one racist in America. And before that, it wasn't even a thought. It's thousands of years of people using cannabis i want to just shift back away from cannabis yeah. back to uh bubbies uh as you embark on this new business venture yeah which sounds very cool very exciting and uh we're excited to see where you're gonna go with it uh you've reached uh, a year in in the owning of a business where you're you're pretty much at like iconic status. You've been around for so long. Uh, do you think Bubby's has another 25, 50 years in it? And if you do, I'm curious to know, are your kids involved in Bubby's? And do you see this being the type of thing that uh, one day one of your kids is going to be either on the line or, you know, uh, seating people at, at Bubby's every single day and kind of taking over the mantle from you as you either move on to a new project or maybe sit down for five minutes and take a break? Well, I, I guess, you know, I have four sons. I've never wished the restaurant business on any of them. Um, and if if these beautiful young sons don't bring value, then they are out the door because I do not believe in nepotism uh, at all. Um, but I, what, I be, the, what I believe is that Bubby's has provided for me and my family for 26 years. And the communities that we're in, uh, I love them. Even, you know, even little Tribeca in all its changes, I love Tribeca. Um, the way that I see it is that if I'm lucky enough to be successful with this cannabis business, I'm going to use Bubby's for, for doing absolute socially good things like implanting good food in sort of fringe communities and uh, trying to start basically a habitat for humanity with, with gardening uh, and you know, sort of exchanges in gardens and, you know, there, there are models out there where with, you know, sort of suburban or urban gardening and exchange programs and processing and having a restaurant in these communities to tie it down. And I'm really looking at the whole thing as, as a vehicle to actually do good things for a long, 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 long time. So in that regard, I hope that my kids and their kids will embrace some sort of vehicle to to just build good community and and you know sort of create access to good food to more people one of the big problems one of the big problems in america today is that the good food is only for rich people because it's expensive so you know I, i actually asked michael paul in this question i was like don't you feel like this modern sort of farm-to-table cooking and blah, blah, blah is kind of elitist. And Michael's answer I thought was very good. 
um, which is that all the best things start out as elitist things like, like, you know, uh, liberating slaves and suffragette voting and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that there is a way and there are, there are definitely guys like Roy Choi is out there, you know, opening up local and people are out there trying to do it. And, and I think for me, Roy is a great example. He's like, you know, I, th- I think he was at some meet, some event with all the best chefs in the world. You know, he's like, you guys are a bunch of assholes. All you do is feed rich people. And, you know, I don't disagree with that. So that's how I see it going in a way. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. It was very awesome to hear uh, everything that you have gone through in order to get to where you are today. Uh, interested to see where Bubby's is going to go in uh, the next 25, 26 years. And uh, interested to see what you're going to be doing in the cannabis space as well. Uh, this has been The Line. Join us next week, 11 a.m. Tuesdays on Heritage Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.